0: We're living in a decaying society, sins that only a few years ago were mentioned only in hushed tones, are now publicly flaunted and even encouraged, and even institutionalized. The moral collapse has done great damage to marriage. It seems that in every generation, the dissolution of marriage takes a greater toll. But as far as we in the church are concerned, the only remedy is for Christians to proclaim and reassert the divine standard from God's Word, and to live it out in our own marriages. We've got to firmly hold to that distinctive biblical pattern for marriage, and articulate what the Word of God says about it without fear or shame. The biblical principles of marriage are straightforward and simple. Confusion comes when people try to fit the Bible's teaching into the framework of contemporary wisdom. Marriage was God's first earthly institution before there was government and long before the church. God ordained marriage as the basic building block of society. The destruction of marriage is the harbinger of the ultimate collapse of society. The more marriage is threatened, the more society itself is in danger. Marriage for two Christians is first of all a commitment to Jesus Christ, and then to one another. Satan loves to destroy marriages, and the best insulation against his attacks is a deep, mutually shared relationship with the Lord, and a commitment to obedience of God's Word. With that kind of commitment, I can hardly see how a marriage can fail. Concentrate on who you should be on the inside. The way you look on the outside deteriorates with age. But the hidden person of the heart matures, develops, and grows more beautiful as we become more and more like Jesus. If that's where the focus of your marriage is, your love for one another will grow and prosper too. Concentrate on learning who your spouse is. I've talked with so many people whose marriages were faltering because they had not really gotten to know each other. No person and no marriage is perfect. If you are clinging in frustration to an ideal of what you want your spouse to be like, you're hurting your marriage. You can try to change each other for 30 or 40 years if you want to, but you're just losing time. The quicker you abandon the idea of a perfect mate and learn to understand and love the one you've got, the better off you'll both be. Live with your spouse with understanding. No matter who you're married to, you can learn to love them. The prevailing wind of contemporary thinking is, of course, that love is just something that happens. It comes and goes, and when it's gone, people divorce. How foreign that is to the idea of scripture, which does not even recognize the possibility of incompatibility among mates. God just commands us to love each other, period. The feelings of initial attraction will diminish in all marriages. But when commitment is cultivated, the reward of a lifelong loving friendship and fulfillment is far more satisfying. Marriage is so important in the plan of God that he wants us to make our marriages all they can be. And a marriage that works should be a priority for every married Christian. We must not allow this world to press us into its mold of divorce and all that goes with the failure of marriage. I was thinking yesterday while Wade was talking the same thing that Mike Manning said Sunday morning after Jim McClung had talked. How did he get a hold of my notes? But these subjects are close together, and that's fine. Reiteration, I, I'm not as against that as I used to think I was. Because the scriptures today are the same as they were yesterday. When I say things that Wade said, it's not because I think he didn't do it well enough. It's just that to talk about marriage that works, I've got to go back to at least the premier passage on marriage in the New Testament, and that's Ephesians 5. And I'll probably reference some others that are closely connected as well. Ephesians 5 contains a distillation of the biblical pattern for marriage. That's where we have primary instructions for husbands and wives. Virtually every question about marriage must first go back to this scripture and the pattern it sets forth. Ephesians five twenty-two through 24 Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. God designed marriage to be the very best that life has to offer. Peter calls it the grace of life. But it's anything but the best for many, many people. Even if it starts in a euphoria, for many it descends at varying rates into discontent or worse. God's design is clear. One man, one woman together for life. The curse hit marriage right at the heart. Sin left its mark. Satan made an assault. And before we ever get out of the book of Genesis, marriage has been assaulted formidably. In chapter 4, we've got polygamy. In chapter 6, unequal marriage. In chapter 9, voyeurism and maybe worse. In chapter 16, adultery. Chapter 19, homosexuality. Chapter 34, fornication. Chapter 38, incest and prostitution. Chapter 39, attempted seduction toward intended adultery. In marriage, we have two human beings colliding with strong desires for their own ways. Our only hope is to follow the pattern God has revealed in Scripture with willing obedience to God. That's where the hope is. There are several points made in the verses I just read you. But the overarching point there is about submission. In verse 21, we have that general responsibility of all believers to have a submissive attitude toward one another in whatever roles we find ourselves Then in verse 22 in particular, Wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. A wife is to willingly follow the headship of her own husband. She's not available to all men. She's not told to be submissive to all men, but to her own husband. The man she possesses, her own husband. The one that is hers. He belongs to her, yet she submits to him. This is a magnificent mutuality. The parallel passage in Colossians 3.18 says the same thing. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is appropriate. This is proper. This is right. It's not a cultural preference. It's a spiritual command. The word translated fitting in the 8th verse of Philemon refers to something that is legally binding. It's also used that way in the Septuagint. This indicates that wifely submission is a command of God. We must submit in our roles, as he said in verse 21. That's the idea there. You know, that statement was made back in the Old Testament. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So, in some sense, every day is the Lord's day. And yet, as we read further in the Bible, we find that the first day of the week is the Lord's Day in a way that the other days of the week are not. Here in Ephesians 5, there is a sense in which submission is fitted into the roles that we face, that we're in. We have not only wives and husbands, but we have children and servants mentioned in this same list in Ephesians 5 and 6 children are to be obedient to their parents parents are not to be obedient to their children children submit to their parents parents for the most part do not submit to their children is there ever a time when the daughter would submit to the father there ought to be that ought to be most of the time is there ever a time when the father submits to the daughter there are times when the roles are fitting. Say you, you're a father, you have a 10-year-old daughter who's a crossing guard at the school. She has been placed in a position of authority. And if you're the driver coming along the street and that girl holds up that stop sign, you'd better stop. She's your daughter. You're the father. But she is in authority in that situation. She's in that role. The fact that she's your daughter is incidental. Later on, when you're home that night, you tell her to go to bed, she better obey you. So we have different roles at different times. Many of us wear different hats. Maybe your wife is your boss. Maybe you ride to work together. In your role at work, you submit to your boss who happens to be your wife. In your role as husband and wife in your ordinary relationship, the opposite would be true. So I don't think these things are too difficult for us to understand. We all have differing roles, and there's nothing particularly personal about it. We're just in different roles. Certainly there is a limit to what is fitting in submission. Submission does not mean that the wife submits to her husband in that which would dishonor God. The apostles made it clear that we ought to obey God rather than man. And if it comes to that, you obviously choose to obey God. Think of Vashti in the book of Esther. Her husband asked her to dance a lewd dance in front of a drunken crowd. She refused, and rightly so. Rightly so. But in the created order and in the design of God, it's a binding commandment of the Almighty that a wife be in submission to her husband. His leadership is given by God and she is to recognize that and in a humble spirit of loving submission live under that leadership. In 1 Peter 3.1, Peter says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husband. What does he mean in the same way? Well, back in chapter two, thirteen of 1 Peter, he said, "...submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as to one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right." All of us submit to the authority of government, or we ought to. In verse 18, "...servants submit to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable." We all submit to government. Verse 15 says, this is the will of God. We fear God and honor the king. Verse 17. The same kind of submission to your employer finds favor with God. When you suffer unjustly, you are increasing your eternal reward. And the greatest illustration that he uses is the Lord Jesus himself. Verse 21. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we might follow in his steps. Jesus shows us how to suffer unjustly. He shows us how to bear the burdening yoke of unfair leadership. He suffered and committed no sin. Verse 22, nor was deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. He bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live in righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. He just turned himself over to God, and in the end, it had a profoundly significant result. He redeemed our souls out of the human race. And in chapter 3, verse 1, with no chapter break in the original text, Peter says, In the same way, you wives. What does he mean in the same way? In the same way as someone under the authority of government, in the same way as an employee under the authority of an employer, whether the government is good, bad, or indifferent, whether the employer is good, gentle, or unreasonable. In the same way that Jesus suffered unjustly and committed himself to God to bring good out of it, so you wives be submissive to your own husbands. You may say, well, I have a husband who's disobedient to God. And Peter says that's all the more reason to submit to him, so that the ones who are disobedient to the word may be won by your behavior. It's not a guarantee that he will obey God, but that's the best shot you've got. Line up under them in subjection. You have all the more reason to if they're not saved. Be submissive to them as is fitting, says Paul. You're not to be submissive if he tells you to do that which directly opposes the word of God, but apart from that, you must line up under him. That's what submit means. Verses 2 and 3, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. That's what they need to see. Let not your adornment be only the external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Maybe you have a husband who is a trial to you, either because he's not in Christ or because he's a disobedient believer. He fails to fulfill all your hopes and expectations for what you would want in a husband. He falls short of what you thought he was, and you are gravely disappointed. You chafe under his authoritarianism. He cares little for how you feel, it seems. This is all the more reason for you to be submissive. All the more reason to demonstrate to him a meekness, a purity, a respectful kind of behavior. All the more reason not to adorn only the outside. It's not wrong to adorn the outside to some extent. If it were, the putting on of apparel would be wrong. And Peter's not saying, don't wear clothes. But do more than that. Do more than your hair. Adorn your heart with a gentle and quiet spirit, which is not only precious in the sight of God, but also is every man's dream. This doesn't mean you kill your personality and become a robot. It doesn't mean you're boring and never give an opinion. But there needs to be deep down in your heart, gentleness, quietness, the hidden part that's so precious in the sight of God. 1 Timothy 2 says, Quietly learning in subjection. This is of great price. But Back in 1 Peter 3, verse 5, For in this way, in former times, the holy women who also hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. So this has always been the standard. This is not new. This is not some Pauline or Petrine offshoot or bias or chauvinism. This isn't something they just came up with. It's always been this way. God has always desired for women to have a meek and quiet spirit and submit to their own husbands. And verse 6 gives us an illustration of that. Thus, Sarah obeyed Abraham. This concept of submission eventually comes to the point of obeying. She called him Lord. That doesn't sound very modern, does it? But she called Him Lord. She obeyed Him. And you have become her daughters. If you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Often a woman said, well, I'm afraid of where He's going to lead me. That's exactly why this verse says, obey, call Him Lord, do what's right. And don't be frightened by any fear because you are obeying God. Just as Abraham is the father of the faithful, so Sarah is the mother of the submissive women. She's the prototype. The word at the end of verse 6 is literally terror. Don't be terrorized by the possibilities if you submit. Just trust God. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 and following, we have a fascinating portion of Scripture that I wish I had more context for. But we do know that the city of Corinth was quite a perverse town. And apparently in the city of Corinth, there was somewhat of a feminist movement. It may be. That in the church, there were Christian women who were enjoying their new liberty in Christ so much that it was to the extent that they thought they no longer had to be under the authority of their husbands so that they were overstepping their limits. And as a result, they were bringing reproach on the Lord and the church. Apparently, in Corinthian society, a veil was the symbol of submission, meekness, and modesty. It seems there were two kinds of women who did not wear a veil. There were feminists, those protesting the role of women. And there were prostitutes, those prostituting the role of women. Protesters and prostitutes threw off their veils. So Paul says in verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. There is authority and submission built in, all the way from God on down. This is not something cultural. There has always been, in God's economy, a place for submission and authority. Verse 4, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same with her whose head is shaved. It may well be that the protesters in Paul's time were shaving their heads in protest against the feminine role. Verse 6, if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. In other words, if you take the veil off in that society, you might as well go the whole way and shave your head because you're protesting against the purposes of God. God accepts the fact that that culture had certain ways of identifying women. They were covered and they had long hair. That was the sign of their femininity. When they wanted to protest that, they threw off the veil and shaved the head. Paul says, if you're going to throw off your covering, you might as well go ahead and shave your head and join the prostitutes and protesters. He says to the Christian women, you can't do that. Your culture has an understanding of the distinction between men and women. And God wants you to work within that distinction. To do otherwise is confusing, it's misleading, and it's distracting and unnecessarily complicates what we're trying to accomplish in the world as the church. Though this particular custom in Corinth is not ordained by God, the distinction between men and women is. And whatever way your society has of maintaining that distinction, be sure to hold to that is the principal point of the Apostle Paul. Lest they conclude that you're fighting against that distinction between men and women. In Corinth, if you take off your covering, they'll conclude that you might as well shave your head and join the march. So verse 7 says, A man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. Man is not to wear anything that marks submission. He's not to wear that which identifies a woman. Woman has a reflected glory. It's as if Paul is saying that man is the sun and woman is the moon, who shines because of the man shining on her created order supports this in verses 8 and 9. Man is not from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Their created order has put man in the place of headship and leadership, and woman in the place of submission. She is to sustain that mark of submission, which in that culture was long hair and the veil. Verse 10, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Because of the angels. The angels recognize the principle of authority and submission. God has designed men and women to live together, and it must be a curiosity to the angels, since among them there is neither marrying nor giving in marriage. It's outside their realm of experience and comprehension. They already understand authority and submission. They realize that even among them there are ranks of angels. There are strong angels. There are relatively weaker angels. There are principalities and powers. There are cherubim and seraphim. But with regard to man and woman and how they relate, the angels must be curious to see God's order manifest in the church. You can look at the church and see at least a glimpse of what God's original intention for marriage was. So for the sake of the angels observing... Maintain your femininity and whatever the symbols of your femininity are. Verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. There's mutual interdependence. The man leads the woman, but the woman gives birth to the man. And just because there's authority and submission does not mean that there is any inequality spiritually or salvationally or humanly or personally. There is not. There is this beautiful interdependence. What is distinct are the roles. Not the intelligence, not the spiritual capability, not the middle capability, not the social capability, not the wisdom, but the roles are what are distinct. Christian women must not think that their equality in spiritual standing before God and their greater freedom in Christ has obliterated God's created and sustained and spiritually beneficent design for them. Now in Titus chapter 2 verses 3 through 5 we have more instruction that supports this concept of submission. Older women are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, noble, excellent, lofty. They passed virtue to the next generations, plural, of women. Not just to the next generation. I've seen women pass pass it on down at least three generations beyond themselves. They steady these younger women by guidance. They help them to firm up their lives. They train them in self-discipline and in prudence and discretion. They teach the younger women. Who are the younger women, by the way? The younger women are the ones of childbearing age and the ones who are still raising children. Many women bear children into their 40s and raise them until around the age of 60. My wife was still putting the finishing touches on our 18-year-old when she was 60. First Timothy 5.9 says, Don't put a widow on the list of widows indeed if she's less than 60 years of age. Somewhere around 60. You become biblically viewed as an older woman. But prior to that, you're a younger woman. Isn't that nice? The younger women are the only category of people in the church that Paul did not instruct Titus to directly teach himself. What did Titus know about being a woman? And yet spiritual enrichment had to pass from one generation to the next. So the older women were the perfect group to personally do that. They teach and mentor younger women. They encourage them to love their husbands. That's one word. Philandros. Husband lovers. This is a command. It's a command that demands obedience and it's a command that assumes the possibility of obedience. To love your husband. You can do that. If God commands you to do it, you know you can do it. When a woman tells me, I don't love my husband, the first thing I tell her is to repent and pray for forgiveness and start loving her husband. It's a sin not to love your husband. This is love in the sense of self-sacrificing devotion. There is a love of depth and commitment. It's the heart and soul of what enables a woman to submit. so much easier to submit if you love your husband. To love your husband, also to love their children. Again, one word. Philotechnos. Children lovers. And also to be sensible, to think right, to have common sense, which is not all that common. Pure, chaste, virtuous, sexually faithful to her husband. An older woman can put that into perspective for a younger woman. She teaches them to be more preoccupied with who they are than with how they look. Workers at home, a houseworker, this is the sphere of a woman's life. It is her domain, it's her kingdom, it's her realm. Doesn't mean she never leaves, but she is the home keeper. She takes the resources that her husband brings home and translates them into a comfortable and blessed life for her family. She takes spiritual things and passes them on to her children. Her presence in the home is an emotional anchor for the whole family. A woman's opportunity to fulfill God's plan for her role as a wife and mother is in the home. Also teach them to be kind, loving those in need. Teach them to be subject to their own husbands, there that is again. And all this for a very important reason, that the word of God be not blasphemed or dishonored. What is at stake is the honor of the word of God. The first point of attack is always the word of God. We find people in our society twisting the scriptures, revising them. People even produce Bibles where God is called she. Women who want to move out of their God-ordained role must assault the Word of God because it's standing in the way. Unbelievers can read these verses out of the Bible just like we can, and unbelievers are more likely to take them at face value. When Christian women don't obey what the Word of God says people watching that and knowing that will conclude that we don't really think the Bible is that important, right? So the word of God then gets dishonored and diminished, and we don't want to do that. One reason to live God's way is to silence the critics and adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Ladies, you need to follow these patterns for the sake of your own joy, for the sake of the blessing of God, for the sake of making marriage the grace of life that God intended it to be, and for the sake of showing the watching world that we obey the Word of God because we believe that God has given it. Take these principles and apply them to your own situation, prayerfully and carefully, because a lot is at stake. In 1 Corinthians 7... Paul says that being single can be a tremendous blessing. Somebody said the only thing worse than wishing you were married is wishing you weren't. Paul says that if you can stay single and be pure, life is a lot simpler. And this is the solution to life for a great number of people. The woman who is married is concerned with the things of the world. How she may please her husband. That's what she lives for. She falls submissively under the leadership of her husband and seeks how she may please him. I can tell that some of you women are listening to this and thinking, what about equal time? But that will come. Just wait till we get to those guys. You think you're squirming. You ain't seen nothing yet. But first though, 1 Corinthians 2.15. Woman shall be preserved, that is, saved or delivered Through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. The context here is that of order in the church. Women listen and learn. That's because Adam was first formed, then Eve. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. So because of both created order and because of vulnerability, woman is not in the place of authority. She needs to be under the protection of her husband, lest she be deceived. And that is, that is God's original design in creating Adam first, letting him be there for a while to learn some things, and then bringing Eve on the scene for him to be her teacher and, him, and her to be his helper. Does this make woman a second-class citizen? Of course not. She shall be preserved from what? From some kind of stigma that she bears because she was deceived and led the whole race into sin. Peter says she's the weaker vessel. She needs covering and protection. She put a stigma on womankind. She is preserved from that stigma through the bearing of children if those children continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. His point is that once a woman led the human race into sin. But the stigma of woman can be reversed when a woman bears and raises a godly generation of children that's the marvelous balance the men are the ones giving the orders but the women are the ones with the majority of the influence these are the ones the women who press those little lives to their own hearts and nurse them in those early years these are the ones the women who are there all the time binding up all those little wounds and taking the children through the issues of life day in and day out it's the mothers who have the children's hearts the great athletes who wave at the camera Say, hi mom, very seldom hi dad. In fact, the coaches have said in the past that you don't recruit athletes, you recruit their mothers. If their mothers like you, then you're in. A woman's virtue has the most profound impact on the life of her children. And the woman reverses the stigma of having led the race into sin when she raises godly children. That's the marvelous calling of a woman. The domain of her home. She's a keeper at home. A lover of children. A submissive lover of her own husband. Now obviously God doesn't want all women to bear children. But those who do find their fulfillment there. In Proverbs 31, we have a powerful picture of what every wife should desire to be. An excellent wife who can find. Her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, so that he shall have no need of spoil. Find a woman you can trust, and trust her with everything. Trust her with relationships. Trust her with your children. Trust her with your money. Trust her with your possessions. She won't go around undermining those things if she's trustworthy. Her husband will have no lack of gain. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. That's an amazing woman. She works with her hands. She arises also while it is yet night and gives food to her household. I have so many memories of that in my life in various homes around the country. Awakening not by an alarm but by what was coming out of the kitchen. This is a very enterprising woman. She considers a field and buys it. She plants a vineyard. She's able to earn money to help. She girds herself with strength. She makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp goeth not out by night. She stays up late. She gets up early. In those days, if you wanted clothes, you made them. In those days, if you wanted food, you grew it. Her hands grasp the spindle. She's weaving. She extends her hand to the poor. She's not afraid of the snow for her household because she's already made beautiful, warm garments for them. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Everybody says, that's so-and-so's husband. Isn't he a lucky guy? She makes garments and belts and sells them. That's how she bought the field. She smiles at the future because she plans ahead. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Wow. What kind of a model is she for her children? She eateth not the bread of idleness, and her children rise up and call her blessed, and her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Baby, you're the best. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. It just doesn't last, no matter what you do. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Christian women need to have their approach to life and marriage anchored in the scriptures. You're not going to learn this stuff from a talk show host or from magazine articles at the checkout stand. The Christian life focuses on long-term objectives and we need to make, all of us, need to make our short-term behavior fit those long-term goals. God's design is subjection for your blessing as a woman, for the blessing of your husband, for the blessing of your children, for the blessing of the church, and for the blessing of our country, whether our country knows it or not. You are the salt of the earth that's keeping our country going right now. The stated purpose of woman in Genesis 2.18 is that the wife was created to rid the husband of his loneliness and to be a help meet for him. God didn't even consider your gender when he saved you. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female when it comes to the inheritance of salvation. Your womanhood is incidental there. But in your role within your family, and in the church in this world, your womanhood is a part of your own identity. This Proverbs 31 woman is the woman God extols. It's not like there aren't other kinds of women. Earlier in Proverbs, we have the adulteress who flatters with her lips, she forsakes her husband, she breaks her covenant, and her lips just drip honey, and she hunts for the precious life of a man only to destroy it. Also in Proverbs, we have the noisy woman, the foolish woman, the rebellious woman, the quarrelsome woman, and a few others. But in Proverbs 31, this whole section is from a Jewish mother to her son. He's writing it, but... This is what his mother taught him. Whoever Lemuel was, some people think it was Solomon. We won't settle that here. We'll leave it to the scholars. But whoever Lemuel was, his mother taught him these things to keep him, first of all, from sexual immorality, to keep him from alcohol, to teach him to take care of people less fortunate than him, and to help him find a good wife. And the model woman described here is of priceless value. Beginning in verse 10 on through the end of the chapter in verse 31. The Song of the Excellent Wife. It's a Hebrew acrostic. Each of those 22 verses begins with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in order. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, and so forth. On down through all of those verses. It's a brilliant acrostic for mnemonic purposes. People were intended to remember this description of the perfect woman. And by the way, yes, it's the perfect woman. It is aspirational. It does describe the ideal. But... That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be trying to achieve it if God has made us feminine. It's a full-length portrait of what every wife should seek to become. And the wife that every man will desire to have. To find this woman is to find a precious treasure. Proverbs fourteen nineteen fourteen says, A prudent wife or a wise wife is from the Lord. And this is why Matthew Henry, the old commentator, said that Proverbs 31, 10 and following is the mirror for all Christian women. I think that's well put. Now back in Ephesians 5, we've discussed the matter of submission, but there's also the manner of submission. Not only is a wife to submit, but there is a way in which she's to submit. That is, as to the Lord. Respond to your husband submissively as if you were responding to Jesus Christ. Think of it that way. This is Christ's will, and when you submit to your husband, you're submitting to him. There are women who think they're in submission to Christ, but their lack of submissions to their husbands indicates that they really are not. The motive for this submission is in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife. The body submits to the head. When you see a body that does not submit to the head, you're seeing something dysfunctional. When a wife does not submit, there is distortion. There is deformity. There is dysfunction. God designed the body to respond to the head, and the husband is the head of the wife. The model of submission is in verse 23. As Christ also is the head of the church. Submit with the same willing heart that the church has in obeying Christ. The church gladly submits to Christ. We understand our weakness. We understand his strength. We submit our weakness to his strength in the church. And a wife should realize that her husband is her protector, her deliverer. That's what Savior means. She gives herself to that protection and that care. The magnitude of submission is in verse 24. As the, Christ, as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to submit their husbands. And here's the magnitude. In everything. In everything. So there are five M's there. The matter of submission is indubitable the manner of submission is as unto the Lord, the motive of submission is because it's God's design, the model of submission is the way the church submits to Christ, and the magnitude of submission is in everything. We're talking about marriage that works. Wifely submission is one component. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 says that in the last days perilous times shall come. And since the last days seem to be the Christian era, we're in them at this time and have been for a while. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, arrogant. People like that are going to have a hard time with any sustained relationship. They will be revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. The word unloving is astorgoi, meaning that they lack normal family love. One of the features of the last day's disintegration is the death of family love. And we're getting there. When God gives a nation over to a reprobate mind, the mind does not work like it ought to. Malicious gossips without self-control, he says, brutal, haters of the good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, involved in their own self-love and their own perceived self-fulfillment. So marriage is assaulted on the outside by the godless, immoral culture, and it's assaulted on the inside by the battle of the sexes. We're talking about marriage that works, but some people wonder if marriage even can work. Ephesians 5 is always going to be the home base for this when we talk about marriage. That's where we learn God's plan. Paul started with the wives, so we started with the wives, but in verse 25, he turns to the husbands. In verse 21, he's talked about that attitude of mutual submission within the roles that you have. Sometimes one submits to the other if you have these different roles, but If we're not careful, we can turn verse 21 into what happens at a basket dinner. You know, I'm at a basket dinner almost every Sunday. And when it comes time to eat, people say, we want you to go first. Oh no, you go first. We can stand there for 15 minutes and decide who's going to go first, or somebody can just go first. That saves time and it lets everybody else go through the line and eat. We can make verse 21 do that to us if we're not careful in thinking through the terms that are used there and the concept of the various roles that we're in. Yes, there he talks about mutual submission, where you consider yourself better than others. But after the general spiritual realities that are back in verses 18 through 21, he says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her... That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The husband's responsibility is to love his wife. She's submitting to him, he's to express love to her. It's the leadership of care. Yes, he's the head of the woman. As God is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of the church, as we saw in First Corinthians eleven. Yes, he is over her, she's to call him Lord, as we learned in First Peter three. But he's the stronger vessel. It's his responsibility to give direction, provision, and leadership, but always in a context of love, and that makes all the difference. Colossians three nine says, Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. There's always the danger of the loss of love. And so Paul has quite a lot to say about this loving of the wife. The manner of this love, in verse 25, is as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's the love of self-sacrifice. The same kind of love Christ extended to his church. Acts 20 says he purchased the church with his own blood. Romans 5.8 says that he poured out his love in his death for unworthy sinners. Romans 8 says that this is an unchanging, undying love. The measure of your love for your wife is this. If it's needful that you give your life to protect her, you don't refuse. Better for you to be cut in pieces a thousand times than to let harm come to your wife. I've heard men say about their wives, well, I love her too much. Really? Do you love her as much as Christ loved the church? If you don't, then you don't love her enough. Because that's the standard. And this elevation of commitment to a wife was revolutionary in the Roman world when Paul wrote this. Cato the Roman said, if you catch your wife in an act of infidelity, kill her without a trial. And they, they could legally do that. A man could take the life of his wife or child for any reason, and there was no legal recourse. Women had no rights at all. When Paul says love your wife and sacrifice your life for her, this was revolutionary then and to a large extent it's revolutionary today. Peter further defines this love without even using the word in 1 Peter 3.7. You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers be not hindered. This is Consideration. Live with your wife in an understanding way. Dwell with her according to your knowledge of her. Study her in an intense manner. One time I was at a musical show, standing right in front of the stage and watching the singer, and one of the men whose job it was to protect the singer took me aside and said to me, you seem to be studying him. And he seemed a bit unnerved by that. Well, I didn't know it had been that obvious. I guess I was studying him. In that same way, study your wife until you know all about her. And then you can live with her in an understanding way. According to your knowledge of her, her sensitivities, you can meet her needs. Understand her feelings, her fears, her anxieties, her concerns, her goals, hopes, dreams, ambitions. This involves a lot of listening and it involves understanding her heart. You need to know her by heart. Not long ago at a university campus I was heading into a building and I got to the door just ahead of a woman who was also going into the same building. I think she worked there. Anyway, I opened the door for her to pass through, and as she did, she said, Huh, chivalry is not dead. I couldn't tell if she was being snide or mocking or what, but I liked her comment because I do believe in chivalry. Dwell with her as the weaker vessel because she is a woman. You are unequal physically. She is weaker. God designed her to be under the strength and protection of a man. She needs your strength. In addition to consideration and chivalry, there is communion. Treat her with honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Men and women are unequal physically. They are equal spiritually. So in the Song of Solomon, the man says, This is my beloved. And the woman says, This is my beloved, my friend. Have a deep, equal sharing of spiritual things. There's nothing in the world more satisfying to me than a great conversation with my wife. Hours can pass, and I don't even realize it, because we're in a communion zone. Sometimes we have literally looked at the clock and said, what happened? Where did those hours go? That's quality time, which I guess may be my main love language. But more than once, we've been having an amazing conversation that's interrupted only when I see the red lights in my rearview mirror. That's always a rude awakening. Love your wife with consideration, with chivalry, and with communion. You cannot say, well, I just don't love her anymore, without confessing that you have sinned. You may say, well, you don't know how she's treated me. That isn't the issue. Christ loves sinners when they hated Him. Is that not true? And that's the model. That's the standard. The biblical definition of love plunges to some immeasurable depths. Loving her means wanting the best for her. And that means serving her. Jesus gave himself up for the church, and the husband loves his wife not just for what she can do for him, but what he can do for her. He lays down his life for her. That's how Christ's love worked and works. It's not a question of deserving. We didn't do anything to deserve Christ's love, and we don't deserve his love. It's like Hosea and Gomer. It's a love that never dies. It's a love that can't be killed. It's a love that is utterly and completely self-sacrificing. We're talking about death to self. Husband, you need to get rid of any pride, it's hampering you. Sublimate your personal desires, swallow your fantasies about how life might have been with somebody else or under some other circumstances. Put all of that aside because it's not only meaningless, it's worse than meaningless because it boils down to temptation. Love your wife with a love that knows nothing of itself, only of her and her needs and her concerns and her heart, and sacrifice your life on her behalf. This is the kind of love that the Spirit of God gives us the capacity to carry and to share because Romans 5.5, 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto us. We partake in the very love which Christ himself demonstrated toward us. The fruit of the Spirit is love. This capacity belongs to people who have been born again. Now the world tries to hang on to the romantic feeling as long as it can, and they have a hard time sustaining it. Look at the divorce rates. But we who have been born again have a sincere love. 1 Peter 1.22 We've got a fervent love because of the imperishable seed of the living and abiding word of God which has granted us new life. God so loved that he gave his son. Christ so loved that he gave his life. We love our wives to the point of self-sacrifice. How can you die better than protecting your wife? How can you live better than serving her best interests? In 1 Corinthians 13, every characteristic of love is listed there in verb form. Love acts. Love does something. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. That's how love acts. That's how we, husbands, are to love our wives. Don't tell me that you don't have the capacity to love your wife. That supernatural, spiritual love is available if you choose to exercise it. And as long as she's your wife, it's your responsibility to give that love, period. It's not a love that's dependent on the object. It's not dependent on physical appearance or muscle tone. It's dependent on you, the husband who loves, and the Lord who loves through you. Love seeketh not its own. It's not looking for revenge or retaliation. It forgives everything done against it. And it keeps no record of wrongs. That's Bible. This love is an act of the will. If it were not an act of the will, the Lord would not command us to do it. The husband perspective of his role should be focused not on his authority, but on his sacrificial love for his wife. This is the most selfless giving, caring kind of love conceivable to the human mind. What destroys marriages is unforgiveness. But if you continually forgive one another all the time, there's no accumulating of a wall. When you will not forgive, all in all it's just another brick in the wall. And that wall grows and builds and becomes, well, there used to be an old country song about, there's a window that I can't see through, somewhere between me and you. There's a wall so high it reaches the sky, somewhere between me and you. That's what happens when we don't forgive. Nothing is more important in your marriage than forgiveness. That is instant, spontaneous, and complete. You must not accumulate the devastating attitudes of bitterness and retaliation and revenge that destroy a relationship. You're the leader, husband. You set the standard for forgiveness. You show your wife how to do it. When was the last time you made a significant sacrifice for your wife? Death to self is the real issue, and we'll talk about that a little bit when we come back at 1030. Thank you for your splendid attention.